0: Hello, you are listening to the latest episode of the Bookbound podcast and I am so pleased that you are. We're about to eavesdrop on a conversation that is quite dear to me for reasons that I will explain right now. It features me, an author, Georgie Codd, speaking with another author, Samantha Harvey. We're both linked by the fact that in recent months, or the last year or so, we have published Memoirs. Are they memoirs? We talk about that later. Non-fiction, let's say, about our lives. Hosting this conversation, we are so lucky to be joined by Sarah Allerley, who's based out in Sydney. Her latest work is also a memoir of sorts, though in podcast form, detailing the aftermath of an accident she had and how she tried to use nature to recover. So nature is something that will come up a few times in this chat, as well as mental health and anxiety, and also what it feels like to kind of expose your life to strangers, really, through books or through a, through a podcast show. Now, Sarah has just asked me to kick things off by explaining where my fear of fish came from, this phobia that's the basis for my first book. So um, I guess I'll just pass over to me then. Here I am. Yeah, it's a pretty weird one, isn't it? Um, Or I think, I thought it was a weird one. And then when I started writing about it and talking to people and then the book came out, suddenly lots of people started coming up and kind of whispering, hey, I, I'm really, really afraid of fish too. It turned out that loads of people are scared of them. Um, so I, when I was a really, when I was really young, I didn't have problems with fish at all. I thought they were great. My surname is Cod, as you've mentioned. So um, I also felt a little bit of affinity for my scaly friends. but. Uh, I got bitten a few times when I was a kid by fish in the water, which was a surprise. And I watched Jaws way too many times, like lots of people. And I got to the point where I just started overthinking fish and what they were thinking about me. And when I I actually went to Australia on a a snorkeling trip with uh, my mum when I was 15 and I got into the water in the Great Barrier Reef, which is obviously like a trip of a lifetime. And I was surrounded by these fish who all seemed to be just gawping at me. And I interpreted it as they wanted to kill me. And so even though they were like this big, and so I kind of ran out of the water, like that's it, I can't do fish. No, I'm definitely, ugh. And I just got obsessed. And um, yeah, couldn't, every time I thought about them, they made me feel gross and, and freaked out. But I couldn't stop looking at them anyway.
1: And so you live in London, not a place known for its oceans. And so you sort of set off on a bit of an adventure. Um, Can you, and this journey was also a bit of a big picture reboot. Can you tell us where it took you?
0: Um, Yeah, it took me, it took me to lots of different places. And I, I, well, so I was fed up of my life in London. And um, actually my writing career that I was hoping would be going really well and uh, I would have multiple books published etc. By that point in my life after writing and writing and submitting and submitting it hadn't gone anywhere and I was feeling really stuck. So I decided to become the next Jacques Cousteau in my head, learn how to dive, conquer this fear of fish and just try swimming with the biggest fish in the world because once i could do that i would definitely have been able to conquer all my fears altogether and everything would be fine and i'd never be anxious again the end um obviously uh, or maybe not obviously it didn't go like that it was quite complicated and lots happened along the way so
1: yeah it went went all over the place <laughs> and we'll we'll encourage people to go and read your book and find out what happened we won't spoil it here for them <laughs> Um, and Samantha so Harvey, in your memoir, The Shapeless Unease, A Year of Not Sleeping, uh, you share your intimate story of insomnia, grief, um, resistance and recovery. And there's also a connection with the ocean in the end. But can you just start by telling us, why did you stop sleeping? Hmm. Um,
2: that's, that's a question I still can't answer. And although this book is called A Year of Not Sleeping, it's actually been now more like two and a half years and it is somewhat better, but I still don't sleep very much. Um, and I still don't know the answer to that question really. I mean, I, at the beginning of the book, there's a kind of spoof case study um, of, a, of an insomniac who's evidently me. Um, and, and I posit lots of possible reasons, you know, there was a bit of, um, road noise outside my house and that was disturbing my sleep and I had been feeling quite anxious for a couple of years before that which wasn't something I'd really had in my life before it sort of seemed that as soon as I hit 40 <laughs> I suddenly went into this different kind of anxious mode you know on cue um, and so, so that played into it and then a few things in my um, personal life went wrong nothing major just few troubles. Um, My cousin died suddenly and um, it it was quite a traumatic um, death and I wasn't very close to my cousin but somehow his death and my insomnia dovetailed in my, they happened about the right time, the same time I should say and um, somehow they got intertwined in my in in my thinking and I started to associate the two things and I, I would lie in bed awake a lot just thinking about my cousin and how we used to play together as kids and how he was now buried and I became very um, overly unhealthily obsessed with, with thinking about his death and, um, and then thinking about death generally and, and, and so it went on and the problem is once you're awake in the night, you know, that's the time when all of your fears and worries, as everyone knows, catch up with you. So it's such a horrible kind of self fulfilling thing. And you stop knowing what symptom and what's caused, you know, are you, are you not sleeping because you're worried about all these things? Or are you simply worrying about those things because you're awake too much and you're thinking too much? Um, and prior to, prior to my insomnia starting, um, I had been a kind of champion sleeper my whole life. I, I barely had an interrupted night's sleep in, in my, my whole kind of, at
1: that time, 42 years or so. So um, it was so such what a you- shock. Oh, sorry. sorry, Sarah. I'm uh, sorry, I know there was just a delay, so I thought you'd stop speaking. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to ask um, I mean, don't give away the, the whole story, obviously, but. What did you discover? There's a there's quite there's a, there's a connection between both your book and Georgie's book about uh, in terms of what do you what you discovered that could help with insomnia. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us about that and whether you think it's is something that we can all learn from.
2: Well, you know, I don't think that that there's very much encouraging news in my book <laughs> for the insomniac, <laughs> unless. Um, you know, the book is less about insomnia, I suppose, and more a kind of, it ended up being a sort of simulation of what it's like to just be very sleep deprived in a way everything comes in fragments and it's sort of quite unsettled and ranging in the voice that I've written the book in. So in that sense, maybe there's something to identify there. If you're an insomniac and you might read it, and I think I would have taken comfort from reading something like this and thinking, it's not just me, you know, this is something other people struggle with, and that's obviously a big part of healing and uh, well, mental health problems, but all sorts of problems. Um, And I sort of again, slightly tongue in cheek, but at the end of the book, I I have a section called Cure for Insomnia. and it really isn't a cure for insomnia, but uh, <laughs> it was a, a, a slightly flippant um, title for it. But it's about swimming and wild swimming mainly. And, I, you know, I'm not saying wild swimming is a cure for insomnia. And if it were, um, I would be cured because I do a lot of it. But for me, that moment of sort of immersion in water and just being in another element is the antithesis of lying awake in the kind of dead dark night, you know, being underwater, in water, being kind of cold, and your body rallying, being so kind of lucidly awake. Um, it has been incredibly helpful to me.
0: I was Samantha um, when I was reading um, your book, and there were so many points that chimed for me. Um, I. I've not had extreme sleep deprivation, but I have had trouble sleeping for as long as I remember. And one thing that struck me, especially just then as well, when you were talking about wild swimming, is that I wondered whether part of the thing about sleep is that sleep involves, it's like an extreme way that you can let go and kind of let go of thinking. And when 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 I'm diving, I feel like I can let go and like the sea is around me and the water's got me and I might feel uncomfortable about it before I go in but when I'm in it there's nothing I can do about it and it when when we're talking about things like death and not being able able to sleep I guess death is is like is the ultimate letting go and lack of control and I wondered if if that was something to do with going on behind why you'd made that connection between death and sleeplessness
2: yeah and I think you're absolutely right it's so it's so true Uh, I mean there are all sorts of associations between death and sleep and some I hear sometimes people say that they they can't sleep um because they're afraid of the sort of annihilation of it you know the lack of consciousness and in the way that we're afraid of the annihilation of death and I don't really have that I in fact it's the opposite for me I crave it you know I I really want that unconsciousness to come to me. I don't want to spend any more time awake thinking, you know, um, I yearn for sleep. But, but as soon as you try to control sleep in any way, it just it falls through your fingers. You know, it's it's an unthinking act. The mind has no part to play in going to sleep. It's a physical animal act. And as soon as your mind starts to get involved and try to work it out, it just will goes wrong and I think that's where you're absolutely right swimming is, is is so kind of consoling because it's kind of like that your your mind has no place when you're when you're just swimming through water I haven't ever dived actually I'd like really like to try um but I imagine that's just you know that steals all your other thoughts doesn't it you're so enveloped by the water and the sensory experience of it.
0: yeah I I found that Um, diving is, yeah, like sleep, where being brain kicks in, and thinking brain just hasn't got any space, and I know, so Sarah, um, I listened to your podcast last weekend, um, Brain on Nature, where you are talking about how important it can be to kind of give your brain a break and that nature can do that for you in a biological way it kind of let the load dissipate and yeah so is that what you found because you had a trauma to get over
1: as well didn't you yeah i had a a mild traumatic brain injury from uh falling off my bicycle a few years ago and and found that yeah just removing all the stimulus that's in the our our lives Uh, really helped me recover, reduce my headaches and um, improve my focus and concentration. And so, yeah, I felt like when I was in the forest or when I was swimming in the ocean, even just sitting in my back garden, that it would um, alleviate a lot of the, um, would also work to alleviate anxiety and the depression that I had from the fact that I couldn't, was off work for months and months with no sign of recovery. But I, I think just that, like you say, that the sort of stillness in nature and the the quiet and the, the lack that you're not being sort of having all this information thrown at you all the time that you're having to process and the especially in the modern world that we're in and also um, Georgie you were talking you mentioned sort of that, that focus on on death to uh, in Samantha's book but there's also uh, in your book as well I mean the, 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 there's a bit of a fixation on, on death as well and I just wondered I mean how does death relate to the to phobias what's the connection there
0: um, it took me a while to notice it, but I think that it, de- death is at the root of all of our fears, is my working assumption as of this moment, because um, I, what I, for me anyway, I found that I'm afraid of the unknown, and I really like to have control, which is an illusion, because there's so much I can't control, like even going on inside my own body, I've got no idea about those processes, they just do their thing. Um, and yeah, so the idea of not knowing when death is going to come for me or the people that I love, um, it, that's, that's my biggest fear, that sudden loss, um, of those, those people and those things and how that relates to fish is quite weird, I guess. Um, how they... So fish fish for me represented the ultimate unknown before I started thinking too much about death. Um, In that we don't know what they're thinking most of the time, unless we're really switched on fish scientists. But even they often have no idea why a shark or something is behaving in the way it is and they're trying to find out. And you have to surrender. They're completely in control of their environment. And when you get into their environment, you're at the mercy of whatever the sea decides to do or whatever the fish decides to do. And when you start thinking about the big fish, cause I became fixated with the whale shark, which is the biggest fish in the world. And that just, that the image of the whale shark just felt so much like a kind of grim reaper type figure that would just kind of come out really slowly in the dark ocean. And then turn, and it kind of doesn't look like it's looking at you. And then actually, it fixes its eye on you, and you think, right, this is it. I'm a goner. It's oblivion time. Um, so that's how it, how it, how it related for me. And I became really obsessed with kind of googling pictures of dead bodies and like diving accidents and things like that to try and confront that fear and see what happened. And I think. Um, I think you did some Googling as well, didn't you Samantha? You were like trying to understand, is that right? Kind of early on in Shapeless Unease, I was like, ah, Sam went to the internet too. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one of the problems of being awake too much at night as well, is that you turn to Google for, <laughs> for things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I spent too much time being overly interested, I think, in, in, um, death but actually I think it was I think it was a very helpful thing for me because I've always been vaguely afraid of death you know in a way that I guess most of us are and you're absolutely right I also think that death is at the root of all of our fears it's where they all lead back to and even if we're not consciously afraid of death there's that sort of absolutely that's the that's the ultimate kind of lack of control we 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 know it's the one certainty we have in our lives, actually, that we're going to die. There's nothing else that's certain. Um, but we don't know when and we don't know how. And so the, there's a lot of, obviously, a, a lot of fears attached to it. But having kind of faced it for, for the last couple of years in all sorts of forms, and face an awful lot of fears, actually, from being awake at night, and also from just writing about it all, um, I don't feel afraid of death anymore actually it's been quite a strange thing and and so I've only just realized that when I when I start thinking about it in this last week or two actually and, and with everything that's going on with the pandemic and so on and and realizing yeah I don't I don't actually fear it anymore so I don't know if that's a lasting position, oh. <laughs> or um, whether it's a fleeting reprieve, but anyhow, it's lovely.
0: <laughs> Do you think that's because you have been facing it for so long? Or...
1: I Why? think so. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. So. I mean, in many ways, fear fuels the narratives of both of your your books, and it's great that you're not fearing death so much, Nelson, Um but could we discuss... Um, your relationship with anxiety, given Bookbound's twenty twenty links to sort of mental health charity Mind,
2: I think I, I, anxiety, I think, is a, is a much kind of overused word, or it's a word that's so generic as to not kind of mean anything anymore. Um, and I have a section in my book where I am up at night and I start googling <laughs> what the difference is between fear and anxiety because. Um, I I have been told so many times that the reason I can't sleep is because I'm anxious and I think well fine but I you know I've been anxious many times in my life and I've just gone to sleep it it doesn't quite seem that that's what it is and and, um, I started to kind of look up the difference between the two and try to understand them and they do happen in different parts of the brain and fear is is the the response to a real threat uh, whereas anxiety is the response to a perceived threat so you can never really deal with anxiety because it's not the thing that you're anxious about is not really there it's not happening so it becomes this kind of self-iterating thing that you you can't run from you can't fight um and you can't freeze and those are our you know well-known three Um, ways of dealing with a fearful situation so I think that's why it's such a kind of entrenched problem in so so many of us because you're you're fighting or trying to fight an invisible um foe and there's there can no be no victory in that so I I can see those anxious patterns in my own mind at times but I feel like what I've been dealing with, with sleep much more is, is actual fear, you know, fear of sleep deprivation. Not it's not, um, it isn't an anxiety about an unknown threat. It's a very known real threat and something that in, in an extreme and severe case does threaten your life. So it, the, the relationship between the two has been really interesting to me to try to look at what's happening in my own mind generally and think, is this fear? And is there something I can never do about it, or is it anxiety, and is it just feeding itself, and can I um, somehow disrupt that pattern? And I found more and more that with the anxious patterns, I can disrupt them, um, and the fear is a more is a more difficult thing in a way. I don't know how that that was um, been for you, Georgie. I mean, I, I guess your um, your fear, your phobia of fish feels like it's more fear-based, but I don't know how you would see it. Is it, is it anxiety-based? Does it feel like it's something that's just feeding itself? Or if, is it very much related to an object?
0: Um, it's, I think it's quite complex. Uh, so I, I, I've grown into, grown to become quite an anxious person in general. And I think I've noticed that when I was a kid, I didn't have that anxiety and I didn't have that phobia and I was around fish and things like that. And so I think um, with other things that were going on in my life and losing relatives and people who are close to me who died and things like that, um, it fueled the possibilities of how terrible things could be. And I attached it to fish Um, it gave me something to channel, um, that wasn't supposed to be a pun about the English channel or anything, but I wish it had been. Um, it, yeah, I want, it gave me a focus for my anxiety in that, okay, I can, I'm an anxious person, but here's something that I can actually look at that is scaring me. And so let's just try and map what's happening there to the rest of my life. And I have tried to do that. and. Actually, the things I've learned in in trying to find the whale shark, and um, especially talking to other divers, I've been able, I've been starting to use that in my life in general. Um, so one thing that really surprised me, um, because I was so caught up in my own anxieties, is that when I was starting talking to all these fascinating divers and explorers and stuff, they were all anxious too. They were scared. They they were doing their thing, and from the outside it looked like they were fearless, but actually they're, they're not, and they had the same worries that I did. Um, like I, one, of, one of my interviewees is a guy called Ahmed Gabor who, um, he's an Egyptian diver, and he broke the world record for deepest dive that a human has ever done in scuba equipment. He went down to 332 meters to the twilight zone of the ocean, on his own, and it took him 14 minutes to go down and something like 14 hours to come back to the top because of all the dangers of the bends and all these crazy things that were going with his nervous, um, like his um, central nervous system, what am I trying to say? Central nervous system, System. 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 that's the (laughs) one. thank you. Woo, I was getting so caught up in thinking about Ahmed stuck in the sea. And I was just asking him, like, well, you know, how how did you do that? Because that that would have killed, if 99.9% if of people in the world had tried to do that, they would have died, no question. And he nearly did. And he was dehydrated for about two months after this one dive and had two years of nerve damage and things. And he was just like, well, you know, I just had to try it. And, um... He was just in the moment. He just stayed in the moment the whole time. And that's what I really struggle to do is stay in the moment. But like right now, we're having this conversation together. I'm in the moment. I feel okay. Before this conversation, I was getting anxious about the conversation. Oh my God, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to be really stupid. Oh my goodness. After this conversation, I'll probably do that for about a day or two and worry about it. But right now, when we're kind of diving in this chat, it's okay. Um, so yeah, I that was I'm learning, learning from fish and divers.
1: <laughs> we sort of touched on this before, but I wondered if we we could um, dive into it, no pun intended, a little bit more. In in both books, nature becomes a bit of a, a point of focus um, during some of the disturbed periods of your lives. With Samantha Wild swimming and Georgie learning to dive, what role? Do you both think that nature is playing there? Um, perhaps um, I'll go to Samantha first, and then we come back to Georgie. Well, uh, as someone who feels
2: often—I mean, most of the time, actually—like we um, have been born in the wrong century, probably the, you know by a couple of centuries. I, I, I kind of feel a, a huge amount of abrasion from. The modern world and from noise, you know, I think part of what what fueled my insomnia was noise. I I had had a noise problem at the house I lived in before, and um, and then we moved house, and then there was a bit of road noise, and it was nothing that would have bothered uh, a a normal human being, but I, I became quite neurotic about it, and I find a lot of things about the modern world. Actual noise, but kind of metaphorical noise—just noise of news and social media and all—all all of it. Um, I find it very abrasive and very distressing. And um, I have always been someone who needed to get out for a walk, um, you know, every day, or, or a bike ride, or a run, or a swim, or something. Um, just and 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 to be in the world, you know, and I don't think there's anything particularly mysterious about it. I think we are, you know, we are part of the earth. We just are. We're physical, organic things. And we, we need that. And we need to know that we are a part of that. We need to feel that we belong to this earth. Um, and I think we so often don't feel that you know, we don't have that feeling of, well, I was, I, I do this uh, morning meditation, um, which is a lovely kind of online uh sitting that started since the beginning of lockdown and um one of the speakers the other day it was earth day and she was speaking about this kind of our relationship to the earth and and she she brought up a, a childhood memory of of life being in africa and, and lying in, the, in the, the branch of a beautiful old tree as a child um, with some her favourite sweets and she was just lying in the branch of this tree eating sweets and she said she has a feeling of um, that life wanted her and she wanted life and um, I thought wow you know actually that, that kind of that's something I think a lot of us don't feel I, I certainly don't have you know I, I kind of want life most of the time I don't really necessarily feel that it wants me, you know, there isn't that feeling of, of symbiosis, I mean of of really belonging to the earth and the earth belonging to me. And I know it all begins to sound a little bit kind of vague, you know, or, or tree huggy, but there's something, we do belong to this earth. It is the only thing we have. And um, I think trying to, for me, that, that prompted her comment prompted this sort of invitation to me to think, okay how how do i want life in what ways do i want it in what ways can i feel that it wants me back for as long as i'm here you know um i think it's incredibly important and feeling of being grounded you know, really grounded on the earth which is something that's very much missing for me when i can't sleep i feel like i'm I'm so ungrounded and that I'm just kind of falling and there's nothing there that's going to catch me and it's a horrible feeling you're sort of waiting for sleep to catch you and it never does and you know so that that sense of being grounded and it, and it that doesn't have to just come through nature I mean I find writing an incredibly grounding um, activity and it gives me as much peace um, as going for a walk does so it doesn't it, it's not only through nature but i think that's one very immediate real way that we can feel that we belong to something
1: it's interesting what you're saying about no, um noise cement that i found after i had my um mild traumatic brain injury that i was so sensitive to noise i was the same i couldn't stand the sound of my kids i i couldn't i couldn't go to a cafe or a bar or a restaurant anything like that i just everything was just everything was really loud and all at the same volume. Like I couldn't sit in a room where there was more than one conversation going on. I just, everything had to be really just one sound at a time. I couldn't listen to music or anything. And, and particularly, and that took a long, a really long time to sort of go away. And, and I'm still very like, I I still really just always, you know, search out quieter spaces, like in the natural world, like you are saying where there isn't, and then there's that double meaning of noise as well. And I and I, you know, also had that same experience, and often still of just finding that the city in the modern life is just too much noise. There's too much you're having to digest all the time. And and there's actually a lot of science behind that. When I was researching brain on nature, there's a lot of science saying exactly that. That that our modern lives and your smartphones are just like you know, the the opposite of nature, right? Nature's like the natural antidote to all the technology that we use. So yeah you, yeah, you are. You're, on, you're certainly on the right track there. <laughs> and how about yourself, um, Georgie? Well,
0: I was just thinking when I was listening to both of you that also the thing I really crave from nature is being put in my place and told that I'm not actually that important. Um, mm. And so, because our cities are just all about people people, people, people are everything, money is everything, you know, look at all the people be a good person, person, person. And actually nature doesn't give a toss. You could just go out. You can be a body that is just walking or swimming and doesn't mean anything to anyone, which sometimes is scary because we want to feel like we're important sometimes, or I do sometimes, but actually I quite like being able to surrender to the idea that I'm, I'm a nothing. I'm, my experience is, is pointless, really. But the, the, and then when you get to that point of feeling like, well, none of the anxieties really, like, none of this matters, really, um, then you can actually start enjoying life and enjoying nature and then, like, just seeing what's around and observing. And I really like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of philosophers over the years that have draw, drawn on that point exactly that like going into, na- into the natural world gives us an awareness of, of how small we are and, and therefore how small our worries are and just giving us that context. And I completely, you know, I've experienced that a lot as well with spending time in nature and anxiety and things.
0: Yeah, it's hard to let go though, because I think because of, our, of how our society is built, and the, the concept that you aren't important and that you don't matter at all goes against so much of what we hear. And so when I was thinking, I kept having this um, image in my head fixated on imagining myself a tiny, tiny person next to a huge, huge whale shark. And oh my goodness, how am I going to cope? It would be like seeing infinity for the first time, like the guy in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy who goes insane because um, infinity is just too terrifying. But actually let if you let it go if you can let go if I can let go I find life is just then you can kind of coast through it rather than grabbing onto everything I was really interested in what you said just now Samantha about how writing um gives you a similar feeling to being out in nature and what I was really interested in is that there's, for me anyway, there seems to have been quite a big difference between writing and publishing and having this, so my, I, I was looking, so I've got both my books here, Little little shot here, And um, on the back of your book it's been branded non-fiction, which it is, uh, the back of my book's been branded memoir, like when I say branded it's tiny letters and it's a barcode, and the idea that I've written a memoir and that it's kind of me-moi, me out in the world with this writing that I was doing and I enjoyed the writing, I loved it, but then it being out to everybody and being judged, how, how, do, you, how do you relate to that, Samantha? What does it feel like for you? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting
2: question. So it's such a big question for all um, published writers, I think, oh, and unpublished writers in when they're thinking about what it would be like to be published and aspiring to that. And that's so, and But before I was published, I, I felt that if I ever got published, it would be the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I was right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, writing itself is, is this, immensely fulfilling sometimes frustrating challenging but always ultimately grounding and fulfilling and kind of beautiful thing for me to do I, I there's nothing i would rather do with my life than this um, and uh, i'm i'm a novelist really i mean like this is the only non fiction book i've i've written and it may well be the only non fiction book i ever write so i'm used to writing novels and that's a slightly different a different thing because you are not sort of on the pages in, in the same obvious way. Um, with this book I thought I would feel much more exposed when it was published. And I I haven't actually I felt it's sort of insulated me the fact that I wrote this book. I never intended to write a book about not sleeping. Um, it was, you know, if someone had proposed that to me, I, I couldn't have done it. I didn't have the capacity to, to write a book length thing. I was so sleep deprived and I didn't want to write about myself. And, but it just came out and it was a sort of act of survival to write it. So because it fulfilled its purpose in the writing of it as a, as a, sort of a lifeline, um, I care less now about what happens to it in the world. I think there are, um, you know, the different there are different elements to being published and one is the industry itself. And even if you have a publisher that you feel very supported by, which I do, it's a, it's an unpleasant industry. It's, there's just nothing really very nice about it. You know, you're, you're pitched, you're, you're pitched in competition with your peers and the, the people that you, you meet and that you, that you like and you respect. And, um, it's this horrible kind of, you know, sort of covert competition between writers. And there's so many books out there and you feel small, this whole thing about, you know, not mattering, feeling small, being invisible, you know, all of that comes into it. Um, But then the other side of it, which isn't the industry, but the readers themselves and just getting, um, just getting a reader and and then writing you an email and saying this book, you know, it's the best thing I've read for ages and it, and it helped me understand something about my life or it it really made me want to write or whatever it is. That, just that one connection is enough to justify the whole thing to me. I mean, the writing of it is enough to justify it, but to justify being published, you know, for all of the, the industry is, is somewhat, I think, kind of depressing and degrading in a lot of ways. The, those real connections, between the author and the reader are life-giving, aren't they? They're sustaining, and I, I never get fed up with that. In fact, I, I value that more and more um, as, I, as I go through my writing career. How about you, Georgie? Oh, sorry, Sarah.
0: I um, I found it, because um, this is my first book, and I also didn't set out to write anything that would be called a memoir. Um, I i have always thought of this book as an adventure story and in the first drafts, the earliest drafts, I was really going for it, like adventure, adventure and um, little bits of my personal life were kind of, I was touching on them here and there because I I kind of had to um, just to explain why I was going to certain places and the um, editorial team at Fleet, who, they're they're lovely, they said, Georgie, um, I think you might need to expand on this and uh, because Obviously, I'd been writing something that was a bit like dangling. Hello, there's something interesting, but I'm not going to tell you about it. Um, and so I was kind of coaxed towards writing more about me. And I still feel I still feel quite strange about it. Because for for me, the the really exciting things in the book are all the stuff I hear from other people and not, not the stuff I, I have have to say, but then readers have um, contacted me and uh, that's been amazing. And to say, I really was interested in your story and the anxiety and I needed to read this right now, which was an amazing feeling. So I felt quite exposed, um, but also, also invisible because it's a first book and there are so many fantastic books out there. It's really hard to kind of justify why some, it can feel sometimes, especially if you've got some low self-esteem from time to time, it can feel really hard to justify why people should be reading your book over anyone else's. Um, I do think it's a good book. I think people should read it. But do I? Yes, no. I, do. um, I don't know. So that's a very waffly backwards and forwards answer.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say I wondered whether you both found the process of writing it and then publishing it and sharing the stories, if it helped you further sort of process your experiences like i found when i the writing and producing and then finally sharing of brain on nature which was a very slow burn project i did it over years but i felt that it actually helped me process the experience a bit and i just wondered if that was the same for you samantha did you, you're nodding your head <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: yeah absolutely i i'm with you on that and um I think this book is is a that's 100% what it is. It's me processing something and I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. I just wrote because I couldn't write a novel. I didn't have the bandwidth for it. Um, I was severely sleep deprived for a long time and I couldn't do very much and I thought well what do I know how to do? I know how to write so i just write some sentences and um, then I wrote some more sentences and, and I found that the things that came out were surprising me. They weren't, they wasn't planned. I'm, I'm not a meticulous planner anyway when I write my novels, but I have a, I know I'm writing a novel and I have a vision for it that's quite clear to me and it usually has a, a sound or a sense of music about it or there's something, you know, there that I can get a, get a hold of. But with this, I didn't even know that I was writing the book. I had no idea what it was, it was just some words on the page, because I couldn't do anything else. Um, and I had no plan for it, no design, and it came out in all these different voices and registers and tones, and there's a short story in there, which is kind of random, and I'm not really a short story writer, but, it, but this, I, I just in, a, in two days just kind of wrote this short story that began to work its way in and then elements of the story started to bleed into the um, into the, the rest of what I was writing and I found that there really wasn't that much that was different about non-fiction and fiction they feed off the same preoccupations and um, yeah I, I found the whole thing was me just very subconsciously processing what was happening to me and, and actually because I wasn't sleeping really much at all and, and that meant that I wasn't dreaming much at all and I think that this book that occurred to me long after I wrote it was my kind of replacement for dreaming because I think that writing is and I, I talk about this a bit, a bit in the book is a form of, it's very much like dreaming it's like a form of lucid dreaming it's very much the stuff of the subconscious which is coming up and you're giving it form and body and, and putting it into scenes but it's all just subconscious stuff and when you're not sleeping you're not processing all of that subconscious stuff so writing was doing that for me it was almost like a dream replacement and so in a very real way i think it was keeping me sane and um which is why i kind of much as I love to get positive feedback on it, I, if I have a bad review, I, I think like, it doesn't matter to me what someone, you know, in, in the Sunday Times thinks of it. It just simply doesn't matter because it it's comes from a place in me which is so true and so honest and that I needed to write so badly. You know, my life depended on me writing it. That's how it felt at the time. But it's really academic to me whether somebody else uh, has a problem with it in
1: some way so um that's yeah that's great yes that's a lovely feeling <laughs> yeah that's really that's really good i was i was quite i found putting myself out there was also like i as a journalist i've never written done anything personal and and also actually started off thinking that that brain on nature would be um not so personal but you know naturally it needed to be and it that it was a, it was a huge thing for me to put that out in the world but um but Georgie I just wanted to ask you quickly did it help you process your experience by actually writing it and publishing it?
0: Yeah definitely I'm I'm when you're sat down and forced to explain why you're making certain decisions to a reader you suddenly realize why well before then I hadn't realized why I had this drive and why I really wanted to go out and learn this, learn to dive and do all this. So that was really interesting. I surprised myself. Um, and then the other thing that was great about the research especially for this book was that it brought me in contact with some really brilliant people in diving and in marine biology and all around the world. And I, it gave me a sense of feeling very connected to a really interesting bunch of people. And being around those people and hearing their stories, I i don't know, it. I felt less alone and I felt like this was a really great project to be doing because it had brought so many interesting strands together. And I'm very happy that I've been able to share so many people's stories in the book. And also happy that I've learned through the, this quest um, how important it is to me, A, to be in nature, but also to have great people around me and a good support network and people I can talk to and ask questions of. And so that's been, that's been, yeah, it was, I'm so glad I, I did it. That was Samantha Harvey and me, Georgie Codd, speaking with Sarah Allerley for the Bookbound 2020 Festival. Thank you so, so much to Sam and Sarah for that. I feel like, I feel like I learned a lot and it's a it's a chat that I keep going back to when I'm trying to kind of put things in perspective. Next time on the Bookbound podcast, we have the authors Rajula Das and Daniel Mallory Ortberg talking about challenging conversations. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, that's great news. We would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast and review us and rate us wherever you get your downloads from. It would seriously help us to spread the word. The Bookbound podcast team is me, that's Georgie Cod again. Sorry, I'm in this episode a lot, aren't I? With Claire Reed, Felicity Quick and Beatrice Pascal. Our theme tune is Wonder Under by The Glad Rags, which was very kindly shared through the Free Music Archive. Have a great day.